Hello, my name's Tom Booten. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll take a look at the end of the road for one of the world's most iconic aircraft, while Tom reflects on the impact of bad weather on UK airport operations. Joe will share some disappointing news from Embraer, while I'll tell you about the biggest widebody order in US aviation history. Finally, I'll discuss a major milestone for the world's next supersonic jet. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show and end of the road. We don't use roads in aviation, so what's going on there, Joe? <laughs> end of the line might have been a better way to describe it, but I'm sure it hasn't escaped any of our listeners' notice. But um, after five decades of production, the Boeing 747 has finally come to an end of its production run. So the last model was is registered with manufacturer's serial number, 67150 and it's currently with registration N863GT. Um, it left the company's Gin plant. And tonic. Gin and tonic, indeed. It left the company's plant last week and it's going to be delivered to cargo carrier Atlas Air by early 2023. This was the 1,574th Boeing 747 ever made. Um, And I thought it was nice that it rolled out at Everett, of course. But of course, that's where Boeing produced the very first 747 back in 1967. Um, I I don't want to keep banging on about the last one, but let's have a quick look back at what the 747 was and how it changed aviation, because... I was reading some wonderful stories. Um, It was a really transformative aircraft. It brought luxurious amenities and lengthy nonstop flights to everyone. It really changed the way that people flew. You know, previous to the 747, it was very much the preserve of the rich. But in fact, back in the day, passengers were served champagne and caviar on china plates with white linen tablecloths. There'd often be fresh flowers adorning the cabin and the two-tier serving trolleys that passed through the aisles would be manned by people in white coats um, with steaks and, and other bits of meat carved up at the side of the seat. Forget an all-in-one meal tray like we're used to today because dining was often three, four or sometimes six courses. It really does put today's offerings to shame. And of course, there was no in-flight entertainment back in the day, but passengers back then preferred to make polite conversation with their seatmates. Um, the seats were wide. They had huge amounts of leg room and big sumptuous cushions that we can only dream about today. But of course, back then it was all about providing the most luxurious experience experience possible and much less concern about selling the maximum number of tickets. Um, But of course, the real game changer was the upper deck, which was frequently used by airlines as a bar or a lounge where passengers could drink and smoke. (laughs) Imagine that. And network with the other passengers who were probably business colleagues or people that they wanted to know. Um, And with the very early 747s, this is really cool, to access the upper deck, they'd have to ascend a lavish spiral staircase. Um, Apparently, that took inspiration from the Boeing's Stratocruiser. Um, but of course, airlines later replaced the lounge with a formal dining room, um, which they, you know, invite passengers up to to have their very special meals. And more later than that, um, it became more seating as airlines got more concerned with selling the maximum number of tickets possible. Um, 
there were some concerns about the 747 when it was first introduced. First of all, um, particularly given the sheer size of it, uh, flight attendants were very nervous on how they could be expected to empty, empty 360 or more ashtrays in the time it took to turn around. Um, there were also some concerns about safety because planes at the time crashed much more frequently than they do today. Um, but the thought of 350 or more fatalities from one single aviation accident, you can imagine that sent shivers down the spines of the regulators. But, you know, Boeing promised to build one of the safest airliners in the, in the sky, and it did deliver on that promise, because in the 54 years of operational services, just 61 aircraft have been lost. Of those, only 32 resulted in loss of life, and actually two of them were nothing to do with flying at all. One of them was a hostage being murdered, and another one was where a terrorist died. Lots more information on those stories on Simple Flying, of course. Um other hull losses were usually older aircraft that got minor damage for one reason or another, but then were deemed to be beyond economical repair. So overall, it's got an incredible safety record for such um, a massive airplane that's been built for such a long time. Um, but of course, the end's been coming for a while. The, all the US carriers phased it out back in 2017. And then the pandemic was kind of the final nail in the coffin of the Queen, if you like. Um, particularly notable from historic carriers like BA and Qantas, um, the 747s were put away. Um, but of course, its unique design has ensured its longevity, even if Boeing's not building it anymore. Um, because in many ways, the 747 came about from plans for a massive military transport jet, a kind of contender to the Antonovs of today. Um, Boeing didn't win the contract, but it did keep cargo in mind when it designed the jet, uh, which particularly included the ability to receive freight with its hinged cone-shaped nose. Um, so, you know, although it's not going to be flown so much for passengers anymore. I think we can expect to see the 747 in the sky for a long time. Um, and maybe some passenger variants because there are still... Um uh, the latest figures from October, so maybe a little bit out of date, but there are still 447 Boeing 747s in active service. Um, that includes four 747-100s, amazingly, 18 747-200s, four 300s, 269 400s, and 152 of the very newest 747, the Dash 8. Of course, Tom's favourite airline, Lufthansa, is the biggest passenger operator today. It has 19 747-8s and eight 747s. 400s in its service. And as well as them, Korean Air and Air China also fly the 7478. So they'll be around for a while. Um, but of course, more than 320 of freighter variants that are soon to be joined by this very last aircraft off the production line next year. Um, those are going to be flying for many more years to come. But one aircraft that's not going to be flying very much more is um, one of my favourite 747s, the 747SP-based Sophia, um, which was a NASA project and flies a a telescope into high orbit to get views of the very deep space um, out there beyond Earth. And unfortunately, she has come to the end of her life. I think we, we discussed her a little bit on a few podcasts ago. But news now is that she's about to take her very last flight and head off to an aviation museum, although we don't know which one yet. Or do you, Tom? Because I don't. Uh, it's Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona. Fabulous. A wonderful resting place for a fantastic aircraft. Mm, and a great place to visit if you're ever in the area. Definitely. Well, I wanted to talk about something a bit more immediate than the 50-year reign of the, the Queen of the Skies, and that was the 
snow that the UK had this week, um, specifically because it just seemed to, like everything, appear out of nowhere and catch everyone by surprise, um, as typical British fashion. So it was quite interesting because I was actually meant to fly from uh, Nuremberg to Stansted on Sunday. So I got a first-hand experience of this whole drama. So I wanted to sort of talk a bit more about it from the passenger perspective, because we always write the news perspective. This is what happens blah, blah, blah. But we don't really talk about how it affects people who are involved. So I wanted to talk a bit about that. Um, Because I was actually, to start with, amazed that my Deutsche Bahn train got me to the airport on time in the first place. Uh, But as soon as I was there, uh, you know, I went through uh, border, um, the uh, security check, I went through the customs, uh, the border check, and ended up in this tiny sterile room with a vending machine and not even toilets or anything else. Um, As the flight, they kind of boarded the flight 70 minutes before we were due to go before an airplane had even taken off from Stansted. Um, And, you know, all of the passengers, (laughs) it was funny because you could see that everyone else was blissfully unaware, but um, I was looking at the numbers and I was actually looking at the plane that Flight Radar said should be operating our flight. And I was like, it says that it's just landed in Carcassonne in the south of France. And right now it's meant to be have flown back to Stansted and be on its way to us. So I was already thinking, not looking good. There was obviously the, the chance that um, Ryanair could have substituted a different plane and crew in. Uh, but at that point, I didn't realize how bad the situation was. Um, so it turned out, you know, like there was no plane coming to us. And I could see this on flight radar. And, um, you know, the boarding time was getting closer and closer and closer. And um, the, the ground crew, to their credit, they were con- they were just like, we've had nothing. So the plane is still running until it, they tell us otherwise. And um, obviously, you know, I guess Ryanair had a lot of work to do on the back end because around half an hour before we were meant to depart, my app updated to say the flight was cancelled. But it must have been cancelled in one system and not another because every time I went to go to the rebooking options, it just kept saying, you can't rebook because your flight's operating. So it took about another hour, uh, another half hour for that to really set in, um, at which point, you know, before anyone else had even realized the flight was cancelled, I'd already rebooked onto the next day's flight. Um, so this happened and then I went to the uh, to the gate agents and I said, look, you know, I'm not flying today. I don't know about anyone else, but I'm not flying because the plane's not coming for me. So how can I get out of the airport? Because obviously I'd left the Schengen zone by this point. Um, so once I sort of told them that I'd rebooked, they were like, oh, okay, if he's managed to rebook, then that means the flight is cancelled. So they looked into it a bit more and discovered it was, and then everyone had to go. Um, And it was quite interesting because they didn't, they could have just taken us out through the sort of immigration where you're coming into the country, but instead we had to go back um, into the Schengen zone through, like essentially the wrong way through the the passport control gates. And um, they basically just split the, uh, the queue in two. They were like, if you need a stamp in your passport, go in this queue. If you don't, go in that queue. And thankfully I was in the don't pile. Um, and then, you know, obviously next step was to go to the desk and get my hotel because Ryanair, you know, they said, um, obviously, they couldn't stop the runway and Stansted being closed, but they still have the duty of care from that regard uh, to look after you. And, you know, I said, look, I've rebooked already. I just need my hotel. And the woman was like, if you're going to wait for Ryanair's hotel, you're going to be waiting here for at least two hours, if not more, because, um, you know, I think a lot of agents are just authorized to 
book a hotel if a flight's cancelled. But I think with Ryanair, they've got like head office has to sort it out. So obviously they had to do this for however many flights they'd cancelled. And at this point, I was like, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm not going to wait here. Um, I'm sure some people did, but I just went and booked myself my own hotel. Um, the funny thing was, I because I was so quick on the cancellation, I rebooked for the next day's flight, um, which itself got cancelled. But because so many people hadn't managed to get on that flight, when that flight was cancelled, they then said, your next option, this is Monday, by the way, now, they said, your next flight is on Friday. That's the next flight we can put you on unless you can get to Memmingen, which is somewhere else in Germany and would have taken like free trains and a bus and possibly a taxi because it's one of these weird little airports uh, by 6am. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to England. I'll go back to Frankfurt. Um, But, you know, it was just interesting to see it from from the other side of the window um, mm. and actually experience it rather than just talk about it the whole time. So, yeah. Have you managed to get a fun. refund? Uh, yes, I managed to get my ticket refunded. I haven't had my hotel refunded yet, but right. um, baby steps. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I sounds like they could have out- taken better care of you, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's always the case with... Um, I, I find the low-cost carriers, um, they're, they're not as well-prepared for these situations. Um, you know, if it was Lufthansa, I'm sure they would have just given me a hotel because uh, when I had my flight cancelled before with Lufthansa, they just I just got to the desk, they were like, here's your hotel, and off I was. Um, but um, it was funny because actually on my train back to Frankfurt, there was somebody on the phone who'd clearly been booked on the same flight as me, moaning that they now had to take the train to Frankfurt to get a British Airways flight back to London. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I should probably quickly add in Ryanair's comment in the interest of fairness. Uh, they said to me, due to ongoing severe snowy weather across the UK, right, uh, Stansted runway was closed temporarily, disrupting flights to and from the airport on the 11th of December and the 12th of December. Affected passengers have been notified and advised of their options. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> and they sincerely apologised for these weather-related disruptions. Oh, dear. Well, sorry you didn't get your trip to the UK. It's okay. I'll go again, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) The good news is it means Tom's here working instead of abandoning me to go and network and have Christmas dinners. So so that's all good. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about some news from Embraer this week, um, because anyone who follows the Simple Flying podcast knows that I'm a bit of a fan of turboprops um, and a bit of a fan of Embraer's. So when Embraer previously announced it was making a brand new turboprop, a clean sheet aircraft that was going to be based on the fuselage of the lovely E2 jet. Um, I was quite excited, but unfortunately, it seems like it's not going to happen or at least no time soon. Um, So Embraer, I think, floated maybe last year, maybe this time last year, this clean sheet next generation turboprop aircraft. And it was warmly received. You know, airlines have been looking for something new. It's been a really long time since any manufacturer came to market with a brand new design. Um, But Embraer confirmed to Simple Flying earlier this week that it has indeed decided to suspend the programme. We asked them because there were lots of rumours.
rumours going around. And it's true, sadly. Um, so the manufacturer has come to the conclusion that it's just not the right time to go ahead with the turboprop project. It maintains that a clean sheet turboprop would be a success and that there is strong demand for a modern next generation aircraft in the sub 150 seater market. Um, it's held a number of discussions with airlines already and potential customers, all of which have been positive so far. Um, but of course, demand is not the only variable to factor in when you're trying to predict the success of such a new project. Notably, Embraer said that it was important that any aircraft they develop met the performance, maintenance and sustainability targets um, that they'd set for this new aircraft. And it said that right now, the options available from some of its suppliers are still insufficient to allow the next generation jet to meet, uh, next generation turboprop to meet all these desired targets. Um, consequently, it's decided it's not in its, its interest as a company to further the project at the moment. What this means in reality, I guess it will come out in the wash, uh, but it suggests an issue outside of Embraer's control that is causing the project to stagnate. Um, it, it could be something as fundamental as the engine for the aircraft. I know whenever I've asked them about the power plant, they've been a bit kind of coy as if uh, they don't really have a plan just yet. Um, but it could be something less significant, but equally important to getting to where it wants to be. Um, but, you know, the demand is going to be there, whether it comes from Embraer or ATR or um, de Havilland, uh, because in the market outlook that it released this year, it said that, you know, short haul operations around the world would create demand for over 2,000 turboprops. It, it signified 2,280 units, in fact, um, with the leading regions being Asia Pacific, Europe and North America. Um, it further pointed out that the number of 70-seater turboprops in Australia and the Pacific Islands has more than doubled since 2010, which kind of indicates that there is potential in the, kind of, the low-density regional markets. Um, but according to Embraer, regional aircraft with less seating density can can allow airlines to open new routes and increase frequencies, improving yields but limiting risks. So, you know, there's a lot going on at the moment of airlines launching into unserved or underserved markets. And something like a brand new turboprop would be perfect for that. Um, unfortunately, for now, the project's on ice. But Embraer has said that it will continue to have discussions with suppliers throughout next year to try and find a way forward. Um, but for now, that's uh, the end of that, I guess. Yeah, um, it's a shame to see them put it on ice because, you know, always a big fan of what Embraer does here too. But <laughs> Definitely. It is what it is and hopefully they take it off ice at some point. I hope so, I hope so. Well, while Embraer is struggling with its turboprop program, it seems that Boeing is not struggling with its widebody program because just today as we're recording this podcast, they've clocked their largest ever widebody order from a US carrier in the history of ever. Um, so like 100 years or so because <laughs> flying wasn't really before that and wide bodies even shorter. But anyway, um, who was the lucky customer? It was United Airlines. They confirmed a firm order for 100 787 Dreamliners, but that wasn't it. They also added another options for 100 more aircraft, so 100 more 787 aircraft. So in total, you know, if they exercise all these options, and maybe they don't, um, but if they did, it would be 200 
787 Dreamliners on order. And that could be the 8, the 9, and the 10. They didn't actually specify which of these. Um, I, I assume they take some of every each of them with 100 of them, but they didn't say whether it's 33, 33, and 34, or 20, 20, and 60, or what the, the sort of breakdown will be. So uh, we'll wait and see there. But it was interesting because it was not just the 787 Dreamliner that United had ordered. They also increased their firm commitment for the 737 MAX. Mm. It's another plane they've already been operating for quite some time. Um, they haven't ordered quite as many there. So what they've done is they've converted 44 options for the MAX into firm orders. So these are like the, two, uh, the 100 extra options for the 787. They've said they're interested in them, but... Um, we're not ready to commit to it yet. So they've now committed to 44 maxes that they were previously interested in. And to top it up, they've added another 56 new orders. So the total firm max order has gone up by 100 as well. So um, firm orders up 200 today um, and another 100 um, options. And it's interesting because according to the United Airlines, the wide body aircraft replacement is going to be it would, the wide body order is partly going to be replacing aircraft through the next decade, but it's also going to allow them to expand the global network. Um, Scott Kirby said, United emerged from the pandemic as the world's leading global airline and the flag carrier of the United States. <laughs> this order further solidifies our lead and creates new opportunities for our customers, employees and shareholders by accelerating our plan to connect more people to more places around the globe and deliver the best experience in the sky. So I think um, 49 words that weren't very interesting and flag carrier <laughs> to sum that up. <laughs> But, you know, it's a lot of planes. They've got over 700 brand new aircraft on order now, if you include all of the orders uh, that are outstanding. And it's not going to be a walk in the park delivering them. It's going to take 10 years now from now to deliver all these aircraft. Um, it's quite interesting because the first sort of deliveries are obviously coming quite soon. Um, in 2023, so next year, they aim to take more than two aircraft a week on average. So this could mean they take one uh, one week and three the next week. You know, it's not saying we're going to take two every week. Uh, but on average, if you average out the year, they're going to take two more than two aircraft a week. And in 2024, this is actually going to arise to more than three new aircraft a week. So um, I feel like the runway at United's headquarters is possibly going to have more brand new aircraft than um, arriving passengers at some point. <laughs> Potentially, if Boeing can keep up with those delivery targets, which uh, mm. it hasn't got a great track record of doing so over the last couple of years, but maybe things will pick up next year. You said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting how they called themselves the flag carrier, because uh, I do think American Airlines and Delta would have something to say about that. But um, mm. uh, we'll come back to that another time, maybe. Yeah, um, we should I, ask them. I was very disappointed that it didn't include a 777X, I have to say, because they've got uh, lots of old 777s that need replacing. And, uh, you know, that would have Watch been really space. cool. Watch this space. But yeah. also happening on the very same day, while United was busy soaking up journalists' times um, in their headquarters. Boom Supersonic was soaking up journalists' times in their headquarters or their future headquarters, which is at Greensboro, um, where they're building or they've broken ground already on what is going to be their super factory. That's what they're calling it, not me. Um, and it's where they're going to be building their very first supersonic passenger jet known as the Overture. Um, up until now, Boom has had a bit of an issue with the Overture in that the 
um, concept for the aircraft is done. They know what it's going to look like. They've started sort of specifying the cabin and, and the construction of the type, but they don't have a power plant until today because they announced today that they have finally secured an engine maker to deliver the power plants for the jet. In fact, they haven't just got one, they've got three. Um, although none of these names are going to be particularly well known to anyone who's into commercial aviation. So they're going to be working with a company called Florida Turbine Technologies, another one called Standard Aero and a company called GE Additive, who is indeed a, a unit of GE Aerospace, but kind of separate. Um, the engine being developed, they call it the symphony, <laughs> kind of going with the musical theme here with the overture. Um, and it's described by the company as a brand new propulsion system designed and optimised for the overture. Um, so this is an announcement that's been a long time coming. Uh, Boom has kind of been shut out of many of the world's largest engine makers. Um, the likes of Pratt & Whitney, Rolls-Royce, GE Aviation, Honeywell, Safran, all those companies publicly stated they had no interest in working with the startup. Um, nevertheless, Boom has maintained all this year, and they told us again at Farnborough earlier in the year, that they would find and announce an engine maker before the end of 2022. So today they delivered on that promise. But who are these engine makers? because I'm not familiar with them. You know, it's not a Rolls-Royce or a Pratt & Whitney, but they do have a strong track record in propulsion, and um, particularly Florida Turbine Technologies, or FTT, which is going to be the company that actually makes the engine. So these guys, as you might have guessed, are based in Florida in a town called Jupiter, but they've got offices all over the world. They've been around since 1988 as an engineering services firm, uh, but kind of evolved into turbo machinery design and manufacture, um, particularly manufacturing and developing gas turbines for military and commercial operations. In 2019, the company was bought out by a Californian-based company called Kratos Defense and Security Solutions. Kratos are quite well known in the defense sector. Um, we're not defense aviation journalists, so I'd never heard of them, but uh, I learned something new today. Um, they have been working with FTT on um, high-performance jet engines for cruise missiles and unmanned aerial systems. So, you know, Overture is going to be a new venture, but it's not exactly entering unknown territory. They already develop very light, very efficient, supersonic or hypersonic engines. So, you know, it's a good, good company to be in with. As well as then, um, Boomer in bed with Standard Aero. Um, these guys have been around for ages. They've got a legacy that dates back to 1911 when they used to repair and rebuild engines for cars, trucks and tractors. Um, in the 30s, it built an aero engine, engine division and began um, MRO services on piston power plants and became authorised providers for Pratt & Whitney, de Havilland, um, some other kind of popular aircraft manufacturers at the time. Um, it overhauled its first turbine engine in 1960 and has kind of gone from there. So this is not an engine manufacturer. This is an MRO provider. And this will be the MRO lead for the um, Overture Symphony engine. It's already provided, um, authorised to provide services for a lot of the big names like CFM International, Rolls-Royce, Safran, Pratt & Whitney. Um, it also works on Rotorcraft, which is another area I know absolutely nothing about. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's a good, solid company that Maybe we haven't heard of so much, but we'll probably be able to do a great job for Boom. Um, the final company that I mentioned there is GE Additive. And this is the one that I'm quite excited about. Um, they are a subsidiary of G GE Aviation, but they're kind of a very separate business. Um, and they specialize in metal additive manufacturing. I had to Google this because I've no idea what that means. Um, but it's also known as metal 3D printing, where you use a heat source such as a laser or an electron beam to heat metal um, that's in powder or 
wire form, and then the molten metal is formed into an object. And the process, it, it means you've got exemplary design freedom. So you can create practically anything. You don't, you're not constrained to, you know, what you can put in a furnace. Um, it's also very efficient. Um, it creates much lighter parts than traditional manufacturing methods. And most importantly for Boom, it increases the speed to market for these much stronger and lighter parts. Um, as you know, Boom's got a fairly tight timeline. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I'm sure that the speed that this process um, allows for the engine to be made has gone in its favor for being part of the project. So we found out a bit more about what the engine's going to be. It's going to be a twin spool medium bypass turbofan engine with no afterburner. That was always Boom's promise that it won't have afterburners like Concorde. It'll have 35,000 oh, pounds of thrust at takeoff. Um, it'll be optimized for 100% sustainable aviation fuel from the get-go. And it'll have a single, single stage fan designed for quiet operation. It'll be a passively cooled high pressure turbine with, as I mentioned, additive manufacturing for low weight, low part count and reduced assembly costs. Um, as, alongside what we know about the engine, we also know there's going to be four of them. So originally the Overture had two engines and then a later design had three with one on the tail. Um, but in the end, they've settled on four, two under each wing, um, partly because that makes it easier to maintain, obviously, that rather than having one that's high up on the tail, um, but also because it needs four. You know, if you're going to propel an aircraft the size of the Overture to supersonic speeds, you're going to need lots of power. Um, and they didn't want to make kind of big, heavy, high maintenance engines. They wanted to use the smallest, lightest, most efficient engines they could. So that's why we've gone to four. Um, and in terms of what's next, Boom has set a goal to start manufacturing in 2024. Um, now, when they spoke to us at Farnborough earlier this year, they said that they wanted to roll it out in 2025 and um, begin flight testing in 2026. It was interesting in the press release they put out today, they've quietly pushed this back because now they're saying that they want to roll it out in 2026 with a view to beginning test flights in 2027. I think that's a much more reasonable timeline, but also it's still quite a short timeline when you're talking about developing a brand new supersonic jet. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, it's got the votes of confidence from um, the airline you just talked about, Tom, United Airlines. They've got an order in Japan Airlines, American Airlines, the Virgin Group. There's a bunch of unidentified customers on the order books as well. Um, so all in, it's declared orders for more than 200 of the type, which is 10 times the number of Concorde ever built. Um, obviously, there's a long way to go yet. Those orders might not be fulfilled in the end. But I think today's announcement adds a little bit of confidence that the project might eventually actually happen, uh, which I would be very happy to see. I'm still sat on the fence. We'll wait and see what happens though. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.